So, it's that most wonderful time of the year. Christmas, the most wonderful time of the year. I, uh, I, we've said this before, but how is it that the time, the, the time of the year that brings up the most stress and mess and chaos in our lives gets to be called the most wonderful time of the year? I know that it wasn't always that way. It wasn't all, there were simpler times. Uh, it wasn't always that way, but for whatever reason, the most wonderful time of the year, it just seems to be a time of magnifying and amplifying the Mets in our lives. You know, we're kicking off this, this series through Advent leading up to Christmas that we've entitled Simple Christmas. And I know for some of us, the idea of, of simple Christmas is just like an oxymoron. Like, Christmas is so, so far from simple for so many of us. And I'm about to just to lean in, lay in on Christmas a bit here, okay? But I want you to know from the outset, okay, uh, I'm not full Grinch. I'm not full Grinch, okay? There, I do have a, a, there's still some, some goodness in my heart uh, for Christmas. But, I mean, because I, I, I love Christmas time. In many ways, it is the most wonderful time of the year. I love, you know, the, the, the lights, the trees, the traditions. I love the get-togethers, the parties, you know, um, some of the songs. I love the, dude, getting together and doing Hallmark Bingo. If you haven't done Hallmark Bingo, dude, just Google it and then bring the family together and have a good time. You're welcome. Hallmark Bingo. So I love all that. Oh, and I guess I probably do have to mention I love the fact that it, whatever it represents, Jesus' birth. Okay, so got that in there. Uh, but there's, there's, if we're gonna be honest, there's so much, about Christmas, there's something about it that just tends to remind us that this world, as we experience it, there's something broken, that things are not as they're meant to be. There's many aspects of the world, many aspects of our lives that are broken. And Christmas does have that uncanny ability to reveal that things are not as they should be. I, I can think back and remember a uh, Christmas back when I was probably nine or ten, and I just remember in December with like the entire week leading up to Christmas Day where my mom was in the hospital. And I'm a nine or 10 year old kid. I'm walking around, there's, there's, there's a Christmas tree, there's a few gifts, there's some decorations, but there's just no mom. There's no mom. And I, I you know, as a nine and 10 year old kid, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not exactly sure what, what's going on. I'm feeling this emptiness, I'm feeling it's sad, I'm feeling honestly a little bit afraid because I, I just didn't know what was happening with mom and no one really have told me the details all I know is that, that mommy's supposed to be here it's Christmas she's not supposed to be in a hospital see even at that time as a young kid I mean I, didn't, I couldn't have articulated it at the time but I knew innately inside something's wrong this is not the way that this is meant to be this is not the way we're supposed to have it be. Uh, much more recently, for those, some of you are familiar with our uh, Paige and I's story, but much more recently, I mean, just a few years ago, I remember Paige and I, with ultrasound photos in hand, announcing to our family at Thanksgiving, the whole family was gathered at Thanksgiving, announcing to them that we were pregnant. And all of a sudden, everyone broke into loud cheers. There were hugs of joy and celebration. A few weeks later, in December, close to Christmas, we find out we had a miscarriage. And 
the hugs that we had experienced, the hugs of joy, had become hugs of sorrow, hugs of comfort. And it, it just remembered the irony of the, of the moment. I remember thinking this. Like, how crazy is it? Like, we are here steeped in a Christmas season, grieving the loss of a baby, and we're surrounded with Christmas songs that are all about a baby. I just remember, like, that feeling, that contrast. You see, Christmas, it, it has a way of magnifying our mess. It amplifies it. It has a way of revealing the brokenness that we experience of life in a fallen, broken world. It's usually around Christmas time where you and I, where we are confront, confronted with things like the broken, strained relationships that we have with our family members and the messy dynamics that that brings up. You know, maybe it's, there's the parents who have, for you, it's the parents who have separated and now you're caught in the middle trying to navigate, where do I go? Who am I, who am I gonna be with? Just trying to navigate the brokenness of that situation. Maybe it's the loved one that's missing because of death, because of the divorce, because of disease. Maybe it's the financial pinch that you find yourselves in. How are we going to make it through this season? Or maybe it's another year where you realize, I'm another year older, I've aged another year, and I still have not yet accomplished what I thought I was going to accomplish at this point in my life. Christmas confronts us with that stuff. It confronts us with the hurt and the pain and the loss that is all part of life in a fallen, broken world. It magnifies our mess. And there's also, it, Christmas, it brings on that subtle pressure, right, to make, we have to make this meaningful. We have to make it memorable. I have to get the perfect gift. You know, the, there's, there's this pressure that we put on ourselves to, to make those things happen. And maybe for some of us, it's, uh, it's the isolation that we feel, the loneliness that we feel. Does anybody notice me? Will anybody see me? Does anybody care? And I could go on and on, and like, all of this stuff that I've talked about so far, it's not unique to Christmas, but it's just that Christmas has this way of just amplifying, magnifying all of that stuff. See, Christmas, with all of the joy, with all of the merriment, it also causes us to feel this sting of sadness, of dysfunction, brokenness. The things that you and I do, we get really, really good at, you know, keeping the cards close to our chest, and throughout the rest of the year, you and I, we can get really good at keeping all of that stuff at bay. We can keep it managed and controlled, but there's just something about Christmas that just causes it to unravel, causes those things to surface and to come flooding out. You see, this most wonderful time of the year has a way of surfacing all of the, the different fears that we have, the frustrations that we have with people the problems that we have, the pain we've experienced, and so forth. I know some of you are thinking, geez, Matt, you were so negative. Come on, man. So, I just want to say, don't blame me. Blame Christmas. <laughs> it's not my fault. Christmas does this. It reminds us that things are not the way that they should be, that there's something deeply entrenched in the human condition that is broken and desperately needs fixing. In other words, Christmas has a way of revealing why Christmas was necessary in the first place. Christmas reveals to us just how much we needed Christmas. 
It reminds us just how desperate we are for rescue. And that, that rescue, that is what this is all about. You see, the glorious news of rescue, that is what Christmas announces. It announces the arrival of our rescuer. See, Christmas not only magnifies the mess, amplifying all of the dysfunction and stuff, it also is a good news announcement. It's a good news announcement that announces the arrival of light, life, and love into a context of darkness, death, and hate. It doesn't just magnify the mess and our desperation. It announces the arrival of rescue. And what I want to do today is I want to talk about that rescue. I want to talk about that rescue. You see, it's so easy. You know, we're going through simple Christmas. It's so easy for us to lose sight of the simplicity of Christmas. And it's either by uh, distraction with all of the distractions out there, or it's just, in my case, it's, well, it's distraction for sure, and also just over-familiarity. We've just become so accustomed to just hearing the message of Jesus and a baby. I mean, we can lose it by distraction or over-familiarity. And if I'm being honest with you, like, there's literally, there's moments, there's moments where I, I like, I have a hard time understanding how is the, how is the news of a baby being born in the Middle East 2,000 years ago, how is that good news? I don't know if you've ever thought that, but I, I thought that. I'm like, how is that good news? And then I'm like, that doesn't, the idea of a baby being born 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, like, doesn't exactly fill me with wonder and awe. You know, how is, how is that good news of great joy for us? And as soon as I think that and feel that, I feel bad. I'm like, I'm not supposed to. It's supposed to be so sweet and filled. We're supposed to experience all this awe and wonder. Like, can you believe it? Can you believe it? And there's just times I just feel disconnected from that. I don't feel that. So I have to think, like, how is this good news again? And I could tell you the right answer. I mean, we all, I know the right answer. I know the church answer. But again, I just feel at times disconnected from how is that good news? I feel disconnected. So it was good for me this past week to spend some time just reflecting on this, uh, this idea. It was good to slow down and kind of just as much as I could, like break free from the distraction and the break through the familiarity and come once again to that simple good news that Christmas announces. It announces that our rescuer has arrived. It announces that God came down into the mess, into the chaos, that God is not far off and aloof. He is present. He is, he is near. He is God with us. He's Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so he has not left us alone. He came down to rescue, to redeem, and to restore this world. So what I want to do today is I just want to go through briefly two simple ways that the birth of this baby, the birth of, of, of Jesus, you know, God coming down in the person of Jesus Christ as a baby, I want to talk about two simple ways, simple, I mean, they are simple, but they're also very profound, simple ways in which this is good news. So I want to look at two things that Jesus came to be. And the first thing is this. Jesus came to be our new representative. If you have your Bibles, open them up with me. Go to Romans 5. I want to read Romans 5, verses 17 through 19. I'm about to introduce you to your favorite Christmas message you, know, you didn't know about. Your favorite Christmas passage. Verse 17. 
For if by the offense of the one, death reigned through the one, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one offense the result was condemnation to all mankind, so also through one act of righteousness the result was justification of, of life to all mankind. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. What in the world does that have to do with Christmas? Hmm, I don't know. It does, I promise. Okay, when I was in high school, I played basketball. It wasn't that good, but I loved playing basketball, but I hated practices. Because there was always this time in basketball practice there was always that one guy who would just be screwing around, doing whatever, some yahoo, and then the coach would say, he'd blow his whistle and be like, that's it, every one of you, on the line. And we know what on the line meant. On the line meant suicide sprints. And those of you, I don't know if you've ever done those, but that's just you run until your insides come outside. <laughs> and that's, that's literally the point of suicide sprints. But remember thinking, like, are you kidding me? How is it that we're all going to be guilty? How, why are we being punished for this guy over here, like what he did? Can't we just kick him off the team? We don't even need him. Get him out of here. And so now we're all running because of this one guy. And then just as you can't catch your breath anymore, you can't barely breathe, and you're just like, everything's just stirring. It's about to come out. I won't get any more graphic than that. It's this moment that the coach says, okay. And he chooses one guy, one guy, he's like, hey, if so-and-so can shoot two free throws and make them in two, two in a row, we're done. And you're like, oh. <laughs> don't pick me. I don't want to be that guy. Don't pick him. Don't, don't, yeah. But one guy would get chosen, and he would go, and of course, he'd brick the first one. You're like, oh, my gosh. And then you just run. You have to run again, and then he would blow the whistle. So finally, the chosen one was selected the chosen one, and he, he would hit two free throws in a row, and the coach would be like, all right, practice is over. You're done. And, and then we just go and die. But the idea is that one teammate's failure made the whole team guilty. Another teammate's success set the whole team free. And so this is, I know this isn't a perfect metaphor, but it does illustrate the power of a representative. You see, what we see in Romans 5, that passage that I just read, is that the, you know, the collective, all you and me both, the collective human race, we come into this world represented. There's no neutral. You, you and I, we come into this world represented. And, why, and while his name isn't said explicitly, this passage is referring to our representative, our first representative, Adam. Again, his name is not mentioned, but it's referring to Adam, the very first man. And so I want to just really quick, briefly, we got to go all the way back to the beginning. Really quick, and a lot of us are familiar with this story, but it's so important to see this. That, so all the way back, Genesis 1 and 2, we see God creating. He's creating, he's bringing order. He's, he's creating and he's calling it good. 
he created a garden, and he placed the first man and woman in the garden and gave them a little a job, say, hey, take care of this, okay? You could eat from anything you see, anything. Just don't eat from that one tree because you will, you will surely die, the tree of the knowledge of, uh, tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so, but they were free. They were free. You see, everything, everything was perfect, perfect. Everything was as it should be for two chapters, great start, great start, two chapters in. In Genesis 3, we see everything come undone. You see that the serpent shows up, and he tempts the man and the woman. He's like, hey, did God, did God really say that you can't eat anything? You know, did you really say that? And Eve like, right, rightly corrects him. No, 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 no. He, he said we can eat from whatever we want. We just can't eat from that tree in the middle of the garden, because if we eat from that one, we're going to die. Um, so we're not going to do that. And so the, the serpent, you know, changes the tactic. Oh, okay, well, did, you, did God say you're really, really going to die? God just knows that if you eat from that tree, check this out, you're going to be like God. And he doesn't want that. He doesn't want any competition. You're going to be like God, knowing good from evil. And so they think about it, and they're like, well, it looks pretty good. And I like to be a wise guy. Wisdom sounds great. So they, they eat from it, and immediately their eyes were opened. They realized they were naked, and they hid. You see, there wasn't in that moment an immediate physical death, but something died. Something died. It was spiritual death at the core of their being, spiritual death. And from that moment on, all throughout human history, that death has been passed on, inherited from all of to all humanity. You see, Adam was our representative, and when he died, we all died. His failure became our failure. And the effects of the fall, the effects of that moment, have reverberated throughout human history, throughout history, ever since. And so you and I, today, we live in a Genesis 3 world we live in a Genesis 3 world that's been played out over thousands of years, and ever since that particular moment, humanity has fallen, been a sucker for the same lie. The same lie. We've been on the same quest. You can be like God. God is, he's holding out on you. You cannot trust him. You trust yourself. You take care of yourself. God can't be trusted. You can be like God, and you can decide what's right and wrong for you. It's up to you to make your life matter. We've fallen for it. The, the, same, the same lie. You see, because Adam represented us and he failed miserably, we are born into a spirit, a really a cursed Genesis 3 world, and we come into this Genesis 3 world spiritually dead. But that just doesn't seem fair. That's what I'm thinking. Why is it that we get punished for this other guy's thing? I mean, he, are you kidding me? Why are we the ones paying the price? Why are we guilty? And I think before we, got it, before we get defensive, maybe for me, maybe you're not feeling, I'm, I get defensive. Uh, first of all, I don't think any of us would have done a better job. I know some of you. And I know me. We're not going to be doing a better job. 
And I want you to think about this. Adam was God's choice as our representative. This is all, this is, it was God, it was his choice to choose Adam as our representative. And the, if the perfect and infallible God chose Adam to represent us, then who are we to disagree with that? No, no, should have been me. Should have been me. I would have done it different. I would have been, yeah, should, no, it should have been me. Again, I know me. I know you too. Again, it's maybe, best case scenario, you might have been able to drag out Genesis 2 a little bit longer. Yeah, you know, a few more days, a few more weeks, my, Genesis 2 might be twice as long. But if we're being honest, all of us would inevitably lead us to a Genesis 3. So before any of us, we complain about the first guy and about it being unfair, let's catch, catch this. Let's catch what Romans 5 is saying here. Look at this. It was through a representative that we experienced death. And, and this is a big and, it's, it's through a new and better representative that we experience life. You see, I'm going to put this on the screen. Admitting the death and condemnation that we inherited from the first representative, Adam, it paves the way to us humbly receiving the representation of another, Jesus, who brings life and justification. You see, it's by us saying, yes, I was represented by Adam. When he fell, I fell. When he died, I died. And it's, it's that same posture that, that humbly receives, like that is the verdict that sets us up to being represented by another. The same posture of humbly receiving what the true and better Adam provides as our new representative. You see, through the representative Adam's disobedience, all humanity were made sinners. So also through the obedience of the representative Jesus, the many will be made righteous. You know, I think we tend to minimize, <laughs> we tend to minimize what the actual problem is. And we tend to think, we tend to think that the, I mean, the deepest, biggest problem facing us is something that with a little bit of creativity, a little hard work, some grit, that we can fix and we can solve. But I want you to think about it. The fact that God came, the fact that God had to come himself, does that not reveal just how bad the situation was? Does that not reveal how bad and how desperate the situation was? I mean, if you think about a situation where the boss, the head honcho, the guy, when the boss shows up to the work site, does that not mean that things have escalated to a certain point? The problem has gotten to a certain point where it's now the boss has to show up to fix it. But couldn't God have just sent us some instructions and some divine directives, some something? I mean... Couldn't we have just gotten something like that from him? Like, is it really that bad that God had to come himself? You think the issue with us wasn't first and foremost a disobedience or a need for better improvement in our, our behaviors. No, it's not disobedience. The problem is death. The problem is death, which means that you and I, we are not at first and foremost need of some moral uh, reform, we're in need of resurrection. 
So we're not desperate for new techniques. We're not desperate for in, uh, improved behaviors, better principles and disciplines. We're desperate for a new representative. See, I know that Christianity, a lot of times you hear people talk about, I feel like I got a second chance. I got a second chance at life. And I am, there's so much truth to that. There's so much reality about how the, how the gospel changes things for us. And we do get this sense like, it's a new day. I, I got a second chance. But here's the thing I want us to understand without minimizing any of that. We don't need, at the end of it, at the end of the day, we don't need a second chance. We need a second Adam. We need a true and new representative. And this is exactly who God promised to send. It's exactly who he promised to send. You see, in Genesis 3, right after everything unraveled and the world and humanity fell and became broken, we see God make a promise. He makes a promise in Genesis Genesis 3, 15, he promises that one day he would come and fix everything that we broke. It's a little bit more cryptic than that when you read it, but this is what it means. He's, because what he says is that the seed of the woman will one day come and crush the head of that serpent. One day I'm going to come and make everything sad, untrue. I'm going to fix everything that is broken. God makes that promise. And the rest of the Bible is the unfolding of this storyline, the unfolding of this narrative. And then we get to Christmas. And I love how uh, Galatians 4 puts it, said, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. At just the right time, God sent Jesus. You see, Jesus comes to represent us. He comes to represent us in order to redeem us. And where, the, where Adam represented us and he failed, Jesus comes to represent us, and he succeeded in every way. And so here's, here's a kind of a cool way to think about this, this contrast. Adam proudly, he proudly tried to go up in order to be like God, and he ends up bringing death Jesus, he humbly comes down to be like us, and he brings life. Adam proudly tried to go up in order to be like God, and he brought death. Jesus humbly came down to be like us, and he brings life. And so that's one thing that Jesus came to be for us. He came to be our new representative. And the second thing I want to look at here, the second thing that Jesus came to be, and I want to close with this, that Jesus came to be our life. He came to be our life. You know, at Christmas, we celebrate the fact that rescue has arrived. And the question is, how did this rescue happen? How did that rescue happen? How did, how did he accomplish redemption? Well, in order to die, he had to be born. Jesus was born to die. And there's one author who said this, and this said it really well. He said, God, at, at Christmas is the story of God making himself killable. God made himself killable. You think about what's the purpose of coming down, living a, a life of 33 years, dying on a cross. And I know the answer that comes to most of our minds is, well, he came to, to forgive us. He came to, to pay for our sins. And there's so much 
so yeah, he came and died on the cross and forgiveness. But I want you to know that there's, there's much, much more. There's much, much more than just forgiveness. See, the ultimate goal of salvation wasn't just forgiveness. The ultimate goal of salvation was the restoration of life. Going all the way back to the beginning, how things were meant to be. Spiritually alive. Alive. He came to restore life. You know, I remember uh, one time as a kid visiting my grandma. And my grandma, she lived in the Midwest. And so I don't know if it's a Midwest thing or whatever. Maybe you guys can help me understand this. But she loved to do, she loved canning her own peaches. You guys ever done this? She loved canning her own peaches. And this one time we were out there. I don't remember how old I was. But um, yeah, she... I remember walking into the kitchen. She invited us to, hey, help me can some peaches. I'm like, all right, that sounds fun. Um, sure, Grandma, what do we do? Uh, and I, she'll come into the kitchen with me. So I walk into the kitchen, and there's literally what I felt like hundreds of jars, like covering every surface area, hundreds of jars everywhere. I'm like, how many peaches does a person need? And I actually don't know the answer to that question. But I do know a thing or two about canning peaches, and I'd like to share that with you this morning. The first, the first thing, you know, the first thing that we did is that you have to sanitize the jar. You got to sanitize the jar because I mean the jar it's kind of filthy, and so what we did was like remember just boiling water and you're just dropping jars in, boiling them until they're sanitized. I mean, so it was a huge process, but it was super, super important to sanitize the jar first because you don't want to have a, a dirty jar, and then you put your peaches in there and you like, close it up. It's not sanitized inside, and it just causes the, the peaches aren't able to be preserved and just causes them to spoil. So it's so important to start the whole process out with sanitization. So you're boiling them, and so that's step one. And I was thinking about, like, what if I had, like, walked into you know, the kitchen and be like, Grandma, what are you doing? Oh, honey, I'm just, I'm just sanitizing all my jars. I just love, love jar, clean jars here. I'm like, oh, that's, that's awesome. What are you, what are you going to do with them? Oh, I just love clean jars. I'm going to keep them clean, and then I'm going to put them out as decorations. It's really nice. Look how, look how pretty that is. You know, you know, people can, we have lots of jars around the house, but they're all really, really clean. You know, and I was like, Grandma, you're cray-cray. Like, if this happened, like, I'd be like, Grandma, like, no one in the right mind just sanitizes a jar and just to, to have it be a decoration. No, no, no. The, the whole point of, of, of cleanliness and sanitizing it is because you intend to put something in it. You, you intend to fill it and seal it up. That's the whole point. You don't just sanitize in order to decorate because we intend to put something in it. And in this case, with, you know, with peaches, just they're preserved. They're in there. The, 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 the whole point of, of cleaning, cleaning the jars is to, fill, to put something in it. You never do all of the work, especially with all of those jars. You wouldn't do all of the work to, to, to sanitize and then just have it be out. You know, I think in many ways, a lot of us as Christians, we walk around like this. Thank you, God, so much for your forgiveness. You made me clean. You made me pure. You made me holy. I'm so clean. I mean, okay, that, that for some of us, I mean, that can be a stretch to even believe that, right? But when we do believe that, 
you do believe, okay, God, you have, you have forgiven me. I feel holy, right? I feel clean on the inside, you know? And then, and then we stop. And we just live life as a, a jar. I, I'm just going to stay clean. I just need to stay clean. Oh, I, mean, I, I got dirty. Now I got to get re-cleaned. I'm like, again, who sanitizes something for, without the intention to fill it? Friends, you and I, because of the work of Jesus on the cross, we were sanitized. We were cleaned we were forgiven, and the whole intention of that was to be filled and then sealed. You were forgiven in order to be filled. You see, this is what we celebrate at Christmas. You guys can come up. What we celebrate at Christmas, we think about the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And praise God that he did, that he came as a baby, lived a perfect life as our new representative. And he went to that cross, and it worked. Forgiveness was accomplished, but he didn't stop there. See, the word became flesh and dwelt among us so that he could dwell in us. See, God gave his life for us in order that he could give his life to us. And we, we were filled with his life. This is the, the truth that we celebrate at Christmas. We make a big deal about the incarnation, the incarnation of God incarnating himself, getting in flesh, coming down. And it's just, a, it's all just a precursor and a signpost pointing to indwelling. And so that, friends, is, is truth that we can remember and we can celebrate this Christmas.